Ismail Zambada Garcia, a.k.a. El Mayo, is considered by many to be one of the most successful drug traffickers in the history of the world. While El Chapo was the face of the Sinaloa cartel, most consider him to be the front man for the actual boss, El Mayo, who has been involved in the drug trafficking industry for over 50 years without ever setting foot in a prison. He is estimated to be worth over $10 billion and hasn't been seen in public in years. He is a ghost to law enforcement, and it's one of the greatest narco stories of all time. So how did he pull it off, and who was involved? Well, you're going to find out in today's episode. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching Lawyer Up. In today's episode, we are going to be looking at the life and times of Ismail Zambada Garcia. We're going to talk about how he evolved from a small-time marijuana farmer into one of, if not the, greatest drug lord in Mexican cartel history. We're going to talk about his involvement with the Guadalajara cartel when the drug plazas were basically unified in Mexico. Then we're going to talk about his involvement with the cartels that were created as the GC fell apart after the murder of U.S. DEA agent Kiki Camarena. We're going to talk about the introduction of his sons into the family drug trafficking business. We're going to talk about his very close relationship with El Chapo, his role in the numerous cartel conflicts, and what his role is today with the Sinaloa cartel. Remember to hit that like button if you enjoy the episode. If you've got something to say, put it in the comment section below. Remember to subscribe to the channel if you have not done so and hit that notification bell so you get notified when we upload. And last but not least, I love it when you guys share me on social media. Now, most of you already know I'm a criminal defense attorney that deals primarily in federal court representing large-scale drug dealers. So I have a unique insight into the narco world. That being said, I am a white boy from the Ozarks who doesn't speak Spanish. So if I don't pronounce names and places exactly right, that's why. With my video on El Chapo, I generally omitted specific references to El Mayo because I knew we were doing a separate video on him. However, I received tons of comments from you guys criticizing his omission from that video. So I won't make the same mistake twice. We will be including lots of information about El Chapo and his relationship with El Mayo in this video. And as opposed to El Chapo, who told his life story in an interview that was published in Rolling Stone magazine, El Mayo is very, very secretive. El Mayo has only done one very brief interview in all of his days. Most of what we know from his story was gleaned from trial testimony of other co-conspirators and a few police confessions from those close to him. The story of El Mayo is full of conflicting evidence, so if you have heard something different than what is stated in this video, that is not a surprise to me. In fact, it would shock me more if you had never heard anything different. In this video, we simply put forth the best information we were able to obtain on El Mayo. So, let's get to it. Ismail Zambada Garcia, or as people refer to him in the drug trafficking industry, El Mayo, was born on New Year's Day in 1948 in a small town in Sinaloa, Mexico. He was raised in a typically poor family. As a teenager, he worked as a truck driver, a farmer, and even washed cars for the municipal government. When El Mayo was 17, he married his girlfriend, Rosario, soon after they had their first child. As the family began to grow, El Mayo realized that legitimate jobs he worked were never going to afford his family any better future than what he had experienced growing up so he started thinking outside of the box. At the time, marijuana was a growing business. It was the mid-60s and the gringos, the Americans, were looking to buy ever-increasing amounts of the green herb to fuel their make-love-not-war mantra. 
Now, Miles saw the potential wealth that the business could bring, so it is at this point that he began growing and selling marijuana. El Mayo learned the trade from Inez Calderon Quintero, who happens to be Rafael Carol Quintero's uncle. Now, you will learn more about Rafa later. El Mayo began, like everyone else, as a low-level marijuana farmer. Inez is also the individual who introduced El Mayo to a new product, heroin. So El Mayo is in Sinaloa, which is in the Triangulo Dorado, or the Golden Triangle region. Now, this is not to be confused with the Golden Triangle of Southeast Asia, but it is also an area in Mexico between Chihuahua, Durango, and Sinaloa that is remote and well-known for being fertile land for growing marijuana and opium poppy. It's a region that has transformed many a local family farmer into narco royalty. So El Mayo started growing marijuana and moving some heroin. And business was decent, but there were lots and lots of marijuana and opium farmers in this area. So supply was high, but profits were low. Mayo realized that he needed to tap into a whole new market of customers which, of course, is easier said than done, but luck was on his side because in 1973, Antonio Cruz Vasquez arrives in Sinaloa. Vasquez was a Cuban-born drug trafficker, and his backstory is murky at best. But what is known is that Vasquez and his prior outfit got busted, and he did a little time in the United States on drug trafficking charges. After a short stint in prison, Vasquez gets out, and while he still had all of his customers, primarily in Los Angeles and Las Vegas, his old supplier was now defunct. So he traveled down to Mexico in search of a new supplier. So you have Vasquez with U.S. customers looking for a supply of weed, among other things, and you have El Mayo with plenty of weed and heroin looking for U.S. customers. It was a match made in cartel heaven. Details are sparse, but Vasquez arrives in Sinaloa, links up with El Mayo, and a partnership is born. Over time, Vasquez actually ended up marrying El Mayo's sister. So now, not only is he a business partner, but he is also family. And with Mayo's supply and Vasquez's L.A. and Las Vegas customers, the Zambada Vasquez drug plaza expanded rapidly. Then in the mid-70s, the Mexican government, under pressure from U.S. authorities, sent soldiers into the Golden Triangle to try to bust traffickers. So the Zambada clan simply moved north to the U.S. until the heat died down in Sinaloa. The Zimbada Vasquez Plaza continued moving dope and at this point was bringing in an estimated $18 million a year. So times were good for the Zimbadas. Within a few years, they went from living a modest, typical Central American life to the present where Jesus Zimbada, the younger brother of Almayo, was driving a Porsche to high school. Obviously, this did not go unnoticed, and soon U.S. authorities began to investigate the Zimbada Vasquez crime organization. El Mayo's name first appears in a U.S. drug investigation report in 1977. By 1978, Vasquez was taken down by DEA agents and ultimately sentenced to 15 years in prison. So, El Mayo was again without a trafficker. But, by now, he had developed his own contacts and was operating in L.A. and Tijuana and had quite the reputation. So in 1979, he was invited to join an ever-growing group of traffickers back in Mexico led by Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, who was moving massive amounts of contraband into the United States. So for a little history, in the 70s, there were several smaller competing drug plazas, as they are called, in Mexico, including El Mayo. But by 1979, three men were able to bring most of the competing factions together to form one very powerful cartel. Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, who went by Felix Gallardo, a.k.a. El Padrino, a.k.a. The Godfather, Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, who goes by Don Neto, and Rafael Caro Quintero, Rafa. 
These three coordinated the various plazas, their production and operations, and formed the core of what came to be known as the Guadalajara Cartel, or GC for short. This was the first Mexican cartel to produce high-quality seedless marijuana in mass quantities in large multi-acre fields. They were also the first Mexican cartel to start working with Colombian cocaine cartels in assisting with trafficking cocaine across the United States border. So, to summarize to this point, during the 80s, the leading crime syndicate in Mexico was the Guadalajara cartel, bar none, and El Mayo was now a part of it. Do you know who else was getting involved with the Guadalajara cartel at this time? Joaquin Guzman. You might know him as El Chapo. El Chapo got his big break with the Guadalajara cartel as a driver for Gallardo. And Gallardo liked El Chapo so much that soon he was in charge of logistics where he coordinated drug shipments from Colombia to Mexico. And while the GC didn't have every single cartel in Mexico under its umbrella, it had most of them as a pretty unified crime syndicate with all the major players, including drug lords-to-be, El Mayo and El Chapo. In the beginning, the Guadalajara cartel produced major amounts of weed and heroin, but was basically just a middleman regarding cocaine from the Colombian cartels. Their job was to receive the contraband from South and Central America and then smuggle it across the border to the United States. And the Mexican cartels were only partial players as Colombia's main entry point into the U.S. was still through Florida by way of the Bahamas. But as the U.S. government increased its law enforcement focus on Miami and the Caribbean corridor, trafficking through Mexico increased significantly in volume. As it turned out, El Mayo was a master smuggler and El Chapo was excellent at building tunnels, which becomes important later on. And life was good, really good because much of what they were doing was actually being protected by local law enforcement, politicians, and the U.S. CIA. What, you say? Well, if you're not familiar with the situation, it can be shocking. So let me explain for the newbies. Now, if you know your history, you will recall that in 1980, President Reagan was fighting communism globally, but specifically in Nicaragua by supporting the Contras who were fighting to overthrow the communist Sandinistan government. Now, Congress had forbid this effort, but Reagan continued to financially support the Contras under the table through the CIA. So after it was discovered that the U.S. sold arms to Iran, the proceeds from which Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North secretly diverted to the Contras in Nicaragua, the situation erupted into what is now referred to as the Iran-Contra scandal. I'm not going deep into that ordeal in this video. I have an entire video dedicated to the history of CIA drug trafficking all over the world that dives into this topic more if you are interested. The other way the Contras were receiving financial support was from the proceeds of illegal drug trafficking in Mexico. And with the Iran Arms Avenue basically dead, the drug connection through Mexico, which was protected by the CIA and local Mexican law enforcement, became of supreme importance. However, not everybody was on board. The U.S., DEA, and Mexican military were still seeking to bust drug traffickers. So in 1984, acting on information from a U.S. DEA agent named Kiki Camarena, 450 Mexican soldiers backed by helicopters destroyed a 2,500-acre marijuana plantation in Chihuahua known as Rancho Buffalo that had an estimated annual production of billions of dollars. Not millions, billions. This was an unbelievable blow to the Guadalajara cartel and the U.S.'s ability through the CIA to fund ongoing operations of the Contras in Nicaragua. And this was the second field that had been busted by Kiki, so he had become quite the problem. The DEA says by January of 1985, and I quote, 
Kiki was extremely close to unlocking a multi-billion dollar drug pipeline involving the CIA, Mexican government officials, politicians, local police, and the GC. And it was because he was about to expose the entire operation that he was abducted in broad daylight on February 7th of 1985 as he walked down the street to meet his wife for lunch. Kiki was surrounded by five armed men, a mixture of Mexican Secret Service and GC men, who threw him into a car. He was blindfolded and held at gunpoint as they sped away. Camarena was taken to 881 Lopa de Vega Drive in western Guadalajara. It was a mansion then owned by Rafa, who it was later determined had ordered the abduction. There, Kiki was beaten, tortured, and interrogated over a 30-hour period. Camarena's skull, jaw, nose, and cheekbones were crushed with a metal rod. His skull was punctured and his ribs were broken. Ultimately, Camarena's body was found almost 30 days later, wrapped in plastic, ditched next to a ranch in a rural area in the state of Michoacan. Camarena's torture and murder prompted a swift reaction from the US DEA, which launched Operation Leyenda or Legend the largest DEA homicide investigation ever undertaken. Investigators soon identified Felix Guillardo and his two close associates, Don Neto and Rafa, as the primary suspects. Under pressure from the U.S. government, Mexican officials quickly apprehended Don Neto and Rafa, but Felix Gallardo was able to avoid arrest until 1989. Over the next several years, the United States and the Mexican governments ultimately brought 14 individuals to justice for Camarena's murder. And if you are interested, this entire story of Kiki Camarena is available in a video on this channel. Through it all, El Mayo kept a low profile. He survived the government crackdown against the Guadalajara cartel over Camarena, and he kept moving drugs north. Recognizing that the end of the GC was nearing, in the late 80s, several leading members of the cartel met and ultimately agreed to divide up the territories previously run by the syndicate. And this is a bit of an oversimplification, uh, but essentially, Gallardo's nephews, the Ariano Felix brothers, formed the Tijuana Cartel, which was to control northwest Mexico in Tijuana and Baja, California. The Fuentes family joined the Juarez Cartel, which was to control the Chihuahua region and northeast Mexico. And El Chapo, El Mayo, the Beltran Leva brothers, and several former lieutenants, including Hector Palma and Ignacio Coronel Villarreal, formed what would later be known as the Sinaloa Cartel, which was to get the central area from the U.S. border down to Sinaloa. Interestingly, El Mayo had close ties with all three cartels and would actually work with all three at various times over the next 40 years. So, the Guadalajara cartel had trafficked most of the drugs overland through mules. They also did airdrops in desert areas, but El Chapo had started building a sophisticated tunnel system from Mexico under the border right into the United States, through which he moved millions of dollars of drugs. After the division, it was assumed the three cartels would basically be equals. They weren't. Simply put, the Sinaloa cartel was just trafficking better than everybody else. They were moving a lot more dope. And because of their logistics superiority, they were getting a much larger slice of the money pie than the other two cartels. This created some bad mojo between the cartels, which was ultimately going to come to a head in 1989 in an event that sparked a brutal war between El Chapo and El Mayo on one side versus the Ariano brothers of the Tijuana cartel on the other side. The incident involved Armando Lopez. He was a charismatic, fun-loving narco. He was a playboy and known to snort a line here or there at some of the most expensive nightclubs in Guadalajara. Armando was known on the streets as El Rayo. He was a pilot, right-hand man, and trusted operator of El Chapo. He primarily flew Cessna planes carrying El Chapo's cocaine. So El Rayo was sent to Tijuana by El Chapo to coordinate with the Ariano brothers. While he was there, he wound up courting 
one of their little sisters. And the Ariano brothers did not approve of this player messing with their little sister. So one night, while Arayo was out partying at a Tijuana nightclub, he got word that Benjamin Ariano was celebrating his daughter's baptism. Drunk and a bit coked up, Arayo decided he would crash the baptism, which is not a good idea for a lot of different reasons. So Arayo arrives at Benjamin's mansion without an invitation. Uninvited, the guards, of course, deny him entrance. Brother Ramon notices El Rio making a big scene with the guards at the front door and without saying a word, walks over and shoots him right in the head. Ramon then picks up El Rio, throws him in the back of his pickup truck, drives him to the outskirts of town and dumps his body. Well, in short order, the murder of El Rio gets back to El Chapo, and he was furious. And so was El Mayo. El Mayo was already upset over some other violent incidents between some of his men and the Ariano brothers. So this was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for El Mayo. And soon after, he began skipping product payments he owed to the Arianos for fronted product he was moving for them. So tensions had already been building between these two sides. Now the Ariano brothers were owed several million dollars from El Mayo, and they were upset that El Mayo, who they considered family, was taking El Chapo's side in this dispute. After it became clear that payment would not be forthcoming, the Arianos sent their hit squad to try to kill El Mayo. Then it was on. From that point forward, it was all-out warfare, with the Ariano brothers on one side and El Mayo and El Chapo on the other. The next major incident was in 1992, where the Tijuana cartel kidnapped, tortured, and executed six Sinaloa cartel men. The Sinaloa struck back in September of 1992 by killing nine members of the Tijuana cartel. Two months later, the Tijuana cartel tried to assassinate El Chapo in Guadalajara by ambushing a car he was riding in. So, at this point, El Mayo says enough is enough, and he calls the Ariano brothers and invites them to a meeting in Puerto Vallarta to hash out the problems they were having to end the violence. And the Arianos agreed to meet. Well, it turns out it was a setup as El Mayo and El Chapo's gunmen ambushed the Arianos at Christine's, a famous nightclub. The hitmen disguised themselves as soldiers to gain entry, but as soon as they got in, they shot and killed most of the Arianos' bodyguards, except for one who engaged the hit team, buying enough time for the Ariano brothers to escape unharmed. So this cartel war continued back and forth until May 24th of 1993, when the Tijuana cartel got a tip that El Chapo was at the Guadalajara airport. So at 4.10 p.m., 20 gunmen descend upon a white Mercury Grand Marquis and filled it with rounds. When the dust settled, seven were dead, but not El Chapo. While he was in the parking lot at the airport at the time, he was in a green Buick a short distance away. So who was in the Grand Marquis? Well, it was Cardinal and Archbishop Juan Jesus Posadas Ocampo. Whoopsies. This incident outraged the Mexican police, politicians, the Catholic Church, and the public in general. In response, the government launched a massive manhunt and offered a multi-million dollar bounty on those involved. And although El Chapo was technically a victim in the attack scheme, his picture was plastered on every major newspaper and TV in Mexico. And this transformed him from being an otherwise fairly well-known criminal to being a household name in all of North America. Exposed in Mexico, El Chapo snuck across the border into Guatemala, but was ultimately arrested a short time later on June 9th of 1993. El Chapo was extradited back to Mexico, where he was charged and convicted of drug trafficking and sentenced to 20 years. End of story, right? <laughs> Not even close. Although Chapo was now in prison, the Sinaloa cartel continued to operate with El Mayo, Hector Palma, and Chapo's brother, Arturo Guzman, getting involved. 
Around this time, El Mayo also began working closely with Armado Carrillo Fuentes, who is Don Neto's nephew, and would spend much of the 90s working with the Juarez cartel out east, attempting to avoid the direct conflict between the Tijuana and the Sinaloa cartels. It didn't work. With El Chapo in jail, El Mayo was left as the main target of the Ariano Felix hit teams. And in 1994, the Arianos tried albeit unsuccessfully, to kill El Mayo with a car bomb. And it's also about this time that El Mayo's three sons, Vicente, Ismael, and Serafin, become actively involved in the cartel. Vicente recounting how he smuggled his first shipment of cocaine. He said he was in Cancun in 1996 with Javier Diaz, the plaza boss in charge of Cancun. Vicente said he was there to assist Diaz, who was to receive a shipment of 1,600 kilos of cocaine. The plan was thrown into disarray when Diaz was killed in Mexico City just before the shipment was about to arrive. Vicente, age 21, carefully lines up security, delivery, and storage of the coke. It was a job well done. And within five years, Vicente would come to occupy a top-level position in the cartel, and by the mid-2000s was estimated to be worth upwards of a billion dollars himself. In 1999, the war between the Tijuana and the Sinaloa cartels got even more personal. El Mayo's second wife lost her parents and several family members when the Ariano hit team stormed a hotel they were staying in and killed everyone in the suite and the cartel war drug on. So it's 2000. El Chapo's in prison, but he still had access to lots of cash and had most of the prison guards on his payroll to make sure he would receive preferential treatment. And on January 19th of 2001, in a group effort, guards loaded El Chapo into a laundry cart, rolled him through the prison, and right out the door. Then a guard hid El Chapo in the trunk of his vehicle as they simply drove away, and he was gone, escaped. Once he was away, El Chapo hops out of the trunk, went to the pickup point where a helicopter was waiting to fly him back to Sinaloa. The whole escape plan was orchestrated in part by El Mayo. So by the end of January of 2001, El Chapo is back in Sinaloa, and he and El Mayo with the help of the Beltran Labor Brothers, continued what then would officially be referred to as the Sinaloa Cartel. I've been calling it that all along to keep these cartels straight, but at that point it was officially known as the Sinaloa Cartel. One of the first things they did was to expand their business offerings. Now, they were originally in the cocaine, marijuana, and heroin business, while the Colima Cartel and the Amezqua Brothers had a stranglehold on meth in that business in Mexico. That was until their arrest in 1999. With them gone, the Sinaloa cultivated ties with China and India to import the necessary precursor chemicals and constructed several large meth labs to expand their operations. They turned the supervision of the entire meth operation over to Coronel Nacho Villarreal, a.k.a. the Crystal King, and while Nacho was ultimately killed in 2010 in Jalisco after a shootout with the Mexican army, in those 10 years or so, he firmly established the Sinaloa cartel as a major worldwide player in the meth game. Interestingly, it was also during this time that El Chapo negotiated a non-aggression pact between the major cartels. And cartel violence, at least between each other, was really pretty low. That was until 9-11 of 2004, when El Chapo had a family member of the rival Juarez cartel assassinated by members of Los Negros, which was the armed wing of the Sinaloa cartel at that time. This was, of course, a breach of the non-aggression pact, and it set in motion a bloody battle between the Sinaloa and the Juarez cartel that continues, well, until this day, really, and it has claimed more than 60,000 lives since that time. And the sparring was particularly intense. In 2005 and 2006, there were lots of brutal murders and decapitations, nasty stuff. So by 2007, the Mexican government had had enough of these cartel squabbles 
and it brought in the military to stem the violence. They made over 50,000 arrests of cartel and cartel-related members. Interestingly, even though it was the largest cartel, only about 2% of those arrested were Sinaloa cartel members, which led to accusations in the media that the government was protecting El Chapo and El Mayo, which they were. And although the government denied the allegations, their crackdown against these rival cartels actually led to the expansion of Sinaloa territories at this time. And it was also a well-known technique of the Sinaloa that they used against unwanted competition. They would simply provide information to ICE and other government agencies so they could bust these rival drug cartels' labs. Since they had all been kind of united before, they had inside information about these other outfits, specifically disclosing the locations of their drug refineries and labs. And that hit them where it really hurt. These tips effectively led to the dismantling of the Tijuana cartel's labs during this time period. So by the mid-2000s, the Tijuana cartel was fading, and the Sinaloa seized the opportunity to take over much of their business, gradually taking the plazas of Mexicali and Tecate, as the majority of the Ariano brothers were either dead or in prison at this time. And El Chapo didn't just give rivals up to law enforcement. It is widely speculated that he made a deal with the DEA where he intentionally gave up some of his own cartel leaders, including Alfredo Beltran Leva and 11 of his hit team squad members in exchange for continued operations free from arrest. After Alfredo Beltran was captured by Army Special Forces in Culiacan in 2008, he would be extradited to the United States and ultimately receive a life sentence. The other Beltran Leva brothers were lieutenants in the Sinaloa cartel at the time, and they accused El Chapo of the betrayal. They declared war against him, and they broke off starting their own syndicate in 2008. El Mayo backed up El Chapo in the dispute with the Beltran Levas, and what followed was a bloody exchange between the Beltran Leva boys and the Sinaloa cartel, which included the assassination of Edgar Guzman, who was El Chapo's son, on May 8th of 2008. Over the span of the next three months, at least 387 people were killed in this cartel spat. Ultimately, realizing they were outmatched, the Beltran Leva brothers aligned with Los Zetas to form a more powerful alliance to battle the Sinaloa. That association became powerful enough to officially be recognized by the U.S. government as the Beltran Leva cartel. But the Beltran Levas took a big hit in 2009 when boss Arturo Beltran Leva was killed in a shootout with Marines. And Arturo was killed not by accident. It was in fact said that Marines leading the raid were instructed that Arturo was not to survive the confrontation, keeping their end of a financial deal they had struck with El Mayo and the Sinaloa cartel. So the Sinaloa had become the biggest and the most powerful cartel in Mexico. So powerful, in fact, that Vicente Zambada, who was now his father's right-hand man, had bought control of the Mexico City airport, paying $20 million to two high-level federal officials so that El Mayo and his organization could just land 727s full of cocaine in broad daylight. El Mayo had essentially created his own government-protected cocaine superhighway. So direct flights out of Colombia and Central America would land in Mexico City, bringing in tons of cocaine every week. The success of the Sinaloa cartel was owed to corrupt federal officials who cashed in on the opportunity to make millions without getting their hands dirty. And by this time, El Mayo and company had lots of high-ranking officials and law enforcement on their payroll. In fact, and this is hotly disputed, it is alleged that the Mexican president, yeah, the president, Felipe Calderon, along with the Secretary of Public Safety, were providing protection to El Mayo and El Chapo. But this protection was not absolute, as El Mayo would soon find out. El Mayo suffered a huge loss when his brother, Jesus El Rey Zimbada Garcia, was arrested by federal agents in October of 2008 when they surprised him at his swanky mansion. 
During the shootout, Jesus called several police commanders and security directors who were on his payroll to see, you know, what the hell was going on and to call for his own backup. When he received no response, El Rey became convinced that the agents outside were sent there to kill him by the Beltran Leva brothers, who were known to buy entire police squads to do their evil biddings. El Rey declared that he would not be taken alive, raised a gun to his temple, and just as he was about to pull the trigger, his son jumped up, preventing his father from taking his life. Ultimately, El Rey and his son were taken into police custody. However, after his capture, the authorities did not make public that El Rey was one of the captured traffickers. Instead, some high-level officials started negotiating with El Rey. They were basically extorting him for his freedom. If he would pay them X amount of money, he would be let go because the public did not yet know that the government had captured one of the biggest cocaine smugglers in the world. But before they could make a deal, the United States got wind of what was going on and they pressured the Mexican government to announce El Rey's capture and keep him in custody, which they did. El Rey wound up being extradited to the U.S. and ultimately would testify against El Chapo in 2019. Since that time, El Rey has been released from custody and is currently in the Witness Protection Program, whereabouts unknown. El Rey's son was Jesus Zimbada Reyes. He was also captured along with his father. He would go on to divulge everything to the authorities. Young Zimbada was involved not only in the smuggling of drugs, but he was the person who delivered payments to the high-level officials on behalf of his father. Obviously, this was of great concern to the government officials who had been involved. In exchange for his information, Reyes was given a new identity and also entered the Witness Protection Program. Interestingly, just a few months into the program, Jesus Zambada Reyes was found dead in his guarded safe house. His death was ruled a suicide as he allegedly had hung himself with a shoelace. Yeah, right. So after the arrest of El Rey and his son, El Mayo was furious about the double-crossing government. He even called Los Pinos, which is the official residence of the president. Now, whether he actually talked to President Felipe Calderon is uncertain. However, the message from Los Pinos was that the Americans were putting pressure on him and he had to release El Rey or he would look bad. El Mayo obviously upset with these arrests, given that he had paid a substantial bribe to the government to avoid such a situation, sought revenge. El Mayo's gunman placed explosives on a Learjet headed from San Luis Potosi to Mexico City, and on November 4th of 2008, the jet suddenly exploded in a fireball that crashed down onto a city street, demolishing the entire block and injuring several people. Now, everyone on the jet was killed, including the interior minister, who was the second-ranking public official in Mexico and the president's right-hand man. It was sweet revenge for the betrayal for El Mayo. The government's response, although it would take over a decade to carry it out, was to hit El Mayo where it hurt his three sons, Vicente, Ismael, and Serafin. In 2009, Vicente was double-crossed after a meeting with DEA agents in a Mexico City hotel and was later apprehended by Army Special Forces. He was later extradited to the United States, where he also testified against El Chapo in 2019. He is scheduled to be released from prison in 2024. Serafin, which was El Mayo's youngest son, was taken into custody in 2013 at a border crossing in Arizona when authorities found he had an active warrant. He took a plea deal, was sentenced, and was released early in 2018 with good behavior. He walked out of prison, got into an SUV, and has never been seen publicly since. Ismail Zambada Imperial was captured by federal agents and was extradited to San Diego in 2019. He pled guilty this year in 2021, but has yet to be sentenced. But I'm getting way, way ahead of myself. Let's circle back to 2013. In 2013, one of El Mayo's most trusted security chiefs, Rodrigo Gamboa, known as El Chino Anthrax, was tasked with making sure that the Zambada family was guarded at all times. 
He was also the founding member of Los Anthrax, a Zambada enforcement cell. He was kidnapped from his sister's house in Culiacan along with his sister and her husband. They were all killed and left in an SUV by the side of the road, allegedly by Los Chapitos, who are believed to have ordered the execution. Los Chapitos is composed of El Chapo's sons. So this was the first overt act that revealed a crack in the alliance in the Sinaloa cartel between El Chapo's group and El Mayo's men. Early in 2014, the government finally recaptures the most wanted trafficker in the world, El Chapo. And ultimately, it was El Chapo's overconfidence that betrayed him. After attending a family reunion in Sinaloa, bodyguards were followed by authorities where they were able to track him down. And on February 22nd of 2014, he was arrested at a beachfront hotel in Mazatlan, where he was staying with one of his former wives and two of his daughters. El Chapo was taken into custody after a brief struggle. No shots were fired. He'd been on the lam for 13 years. So El Chapo was taken back to the prison from which he escaped. He faced charges in Mexico and the United States for murder and kidnapping and torture and drug trafficking and money laundering and you name it. U.S. officials sought extradition, but in January of 2015, a federal judge in Mexico said El Chapo is not going to the United States until he has been tried in Mexico and, if convicted, served all of his time, which he estimated would be between 300 and 400 years. El Mayo? He just kept on moving dope. People always ask, how did he avoid getting arrested all of these years? It is believed that El Mayo primarily hides out in the Sierra Madre Mountains in the Triangulo Dorado or Golden Triangle region. And there are lots of hideouts and caves in these mountains which provide great cover for heroin, cocaine, and meth labs. His entourage has been known to move between a network of ranches in the region. These ranches are very remote and are only accessible by long, single-track dirt roads where you can see somebody coming from miles away. The Sinaloa have a network of ATVs, armored vehicles, and aircraft to easily escape any incoming foe, and El Mayo may have even had plastic surgery to further disguise himself. So El Chapo is in prison in Mexico. El Mayo is out, and that's where things stood until July 11th of 2015, when El Chapo escaped a second time. The architect behind the escape plan is again believed to be El Mayo and others. So here's how he escaped the second time. There was a tunnel that was chiseled out 33 feet underground. It spanned right at a mile to a house that was under construction nearby. The tunnel was 5 feet 7 inches tall to give El Chapo 1 inch of clearance and 2.5 feet wide. It had lighting, it had air ducts, and a motorcycle on rails for a fast getaway. Upon discovery of the escape, officials immediately sounded the alarm, which started another worldwide manhunt. Interpol was notified, the Mexican airports were put on lockdown, and a multi-million dollar bounty was put on El Chapo's head. This was obviously pretty embarrassing for the Mexican government because they had now lost track of El Chapo twice, and it seriously called into question the Mexican government's ability to ever bring El Chapo to justice. But what the Mexican government did in response was very smart they got in touch with law enforcement team in Colombia that had caught Pablo Escobar and dismantled the Medellin and the Cali cartels. And they developed a similar search block task force that was specifically dedicated to tracking down El Chapo. Then what happened next has to be categorized in the truth is stranger than fiction category. So El Chapo, back with the Sinaloa cartel, reaches out to Mexican actress Kate de Castillo, telling her he would like to do a Hollywood film about his life. She agrees, and she contacts American actor Sean Penn. Yeah, the one that was married to Madonna. And they agree they will do an interview of El Chapo. So on October 2 of 2015, de Castillo and Penn take two separate planes and a seven-hour jeep ride to a mountaintop location in the Sierra Madres, where they conducted an interview that would later be published in the Rolling Stone magazine. 
And El Chapo tells his story, including that he has, quote, supplied more heroin, meth, cocaine, and marijuana than anybody else in the world. Now, it's hotly disputed as to whether this meeting actually led authorities to El Chapo's hidden location. Regardless, the Mexican Marines began closing in, and by January 8th of 2016, once again, El Chapo was back in custody. This stint of freedom lasting only about six months. Legal proceedings started up again, only this time the Mexican officials were on board to extradite El Chapo to the United States. Hey, you guys see if you can hold it. It took a year, but in January of 2017, El Chapo was extradited to the U.S., tried in a New York federal court, found guilty on all charges, and sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years. El Chapo is currently serving his sentence at the ADX Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado. This is the nation's new Alcatraz and is considered the most secure prison in the United States, if not the world. So with El Chapo gone for good, El Mayo would become the undisputed boss of the Sinaloa cartel, right? Well, not so fast. El Chapo's sons? Remember Los Chapitos? They thought they should be the rightful heirs to the throne, which caused friction and then downright warfare between those vying for control of the cartel. And the two had very different philosophies. El Mayo, he lays low. Los Chapitos, well, they're ambitious and they're known to show off their wealth and be far more visible. This was never more evident than in 2016 when Los Chapitos were kidnapped by a rogue Jalisco New Generation Cartel enforcement squad while they were dining in an upscale restaurant. It was El Mayo, among others, who stepped in and helped save their lives as the kidnappers released them unharmed after threats of retaliation from the Sinaloa. In 2017, additional fractures emerged in the Sinaloa cartel as Damaso Lopez, an existing cartel boss, also started eyeing the top position. So now there were three factions that were vying for control. In 2017, Damaso organized a meeting between himself, El Mayo, and Los Chapitos to address the future leadership within the Sinaloa cartel. Los Chapitos and El Mayo went to the meeting and arrived on time, but Damaso was nowhere to be found when all of a sudden an SUV comes speeding through and starts firing at the traffickers gathered inside the house. It was a trap set up by Damaso, who was making a play for the whole Sinaloa cartel. Well, the attack failed to kill El Mayo or Los Chapitos, and eventually Damaso was tracked down by police and arrested. In 2018, the division between Los Chapitos and El Mayo slowly widened, but then split completely open in October of 2019 when a large convoy of Mexican National Guards drove up to the house of Ovidio Guzman, who is one of El Chapo's sons, in Culiacan. They were there to serve an extradition warrant from a United States judge. So the military succeeded in capturing Ovidio, but quickly found themselves surrounded by cartel enforcers in what is now referred to as the infamous Battle of Culiacan. So around 700 cartel gunmen began to attack civilian, government, and military targets around the city, and massive towers of smoke could be seen rising from burning cars and vehicles. The cartel gunmen were equipped with armored vehicles, they had bulletproof vests, 50 caliber rifles, rocket launchers, grenade launchers, and heavy machine guns. In the end, Guzman Lopez was actually released by the military after the cartel took multiple hostages, including eight servicemen and a housing unit where military families lived in Culiacan. The Mexican president would later defend the decision to release a video arguing, quote, it prevented further loss of life and that the capture of one drug smuggler could not be more valuable than the lives of innocent civilians. Now, this was a Sinaloa cartel victory for sure, and while there was a massive cartel turnout, El Mayo held back his gunman, who did not respond to the scene. This put a permanent wedge in the relationship between Los Chapitos and El Mayo because they believed he had turned his back on them in their time of need and the resentment has now boiled over into an intercell warfare within the cartel between Los Chapitos and the Zimbada sex. 
In June of 2020, it was revealed that El Mayo had offered to give former top Mexican drug lords Rafael and Miguel Caro Quintero high-ranking positions in the Sinaloa cartel if they agreed to join him. However, the effort to recruit the Caro Quintero brothers faltered due to El Mayo's declining health and the obvious internal conflicts with El Chapo's sons. As of 2021, rumors are that El Mayo is no longer involved in the day-to-day operations due to his age and its complications from diabetes. Maito Flacco is rumored to be the heir apparent, but the future leadership of the Sinaloa cartel is murky at best. For now, authorities continue searching for El Mayo, who has been a ghost for over 50 years and who, according to himself, knows the Sierras like the back of his hand. El Mayo has been wanted by the Mexican Attorney General's Office since 1988. They have put out $2.8 million in bounties for his arrest. He's also been featured on America's Most Wanted, and the United States FBI is offering up to $5 million for information leading to the arrest of El Mayo. At the end of the day, the DEA suggests that over the last 50 years, El Mayo's reach by and through the Sinaloa and Juarez cartels surpasses the influence and power of both Pablo Escobar and El Chapo. He is considered the last true boss. And I will leave you with this. It's an excerpt of the only known interview of El Mayo from 2010. He was asked this question. If you are caught, would you end your life? And here was El Mayo's answer. I don't know if I have the balls to kill myself. I'd like to think, yes, I would kill myself. But if the government shoots me, there would be euphoria. But at the end of the day, you figure out nothing changes. The problem is drug trafficking involves millions of people. How can you control them? As soon as one of them is killed, captured, or extradited, his replacement is ready. So that is the episode. I hope you have enjoyed the discussion of the life and times of Ismael Zambada Garcia El Mayo, the last true boss. If you enjoyed the episode, smash that like button for me. If you got something to say, you got a question, you got a comment, put it in the comment sections below. If you haven't subscribed yet, do it. Subscribe to the channel. What are you waiting for, right? And as always, I love it when you guys share me on social media. Again, my name is Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you guys have been watching Lawyer Up. Send lawyers, guns, and money. 